Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Uh, the man behind the counter at the bus station slid me a $2 bill as change. And he said, everything's going to change. Hello, and welcome to Live Through That, the companion podcast to my book where I look at influential 90s musicians and where they are today. I'm Mike Hipple, and on this podcast, we'll dig deeper into a pivotal moment into the lives of some of the artists I feature in the book. You can get yourself a copy of the book now using the promo code PODCAST15 to get 15% off. You can find the link on the main page of the podcast. Today's guest is Chris Ballou from the Presidents of the United States of America. I'm very excited to have him on the show because I have such great memories not only of watching him in the president's heyday here at small clubs in Seattle, but also because I loved going to his shows as as Casper Baby Pants with my kids in the 2000s. No matter whether he's playing music for adults or music for kids, the guy is a fantastic live musician and all-around great guy. Today, he shares with us his journey from sideman to band member to solo artist. First, the earth was a ball of molten lava. Uh, Then a lightning strike uh, created life and life crawled out of the lava. No, that's not right. Life can't crawl out of lava. What am I talking about? I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not a scientist. I'm a musician, which is why life for me began with a hammer and a piano. When I was a tiny, tiny child, uh, the first experience I had with making quote unquote music was... uh, banging on a piano with a hammer. <laughs> I just thought it sounded amazing because the the uh, strings and the piano would vibrate and make this, you know, un, unreal, uh, unbelievable sound, uh, unrealistic sound, <laughs> unbelievable. And I just loved banging on that piano with that hammer. And those divots from that piano banging session uh, or the series of sessions stayed on the piano. And as I grew up and got better at playing the actual keys on the piano, I could stare down at those divots and remember my origins. Um, Simultaneously, I uh, discovered the Beatles and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And that album really sent my child brain on a journey every time I listened to it. And it kind of informed how I wanted to make music later. I wanted to make music that also sent people's brains on journeys and showed them pictures and set off little movies in their heads. So the combination of banging on the piano and and listening to Sgt. Pepper's for five years straight without listening to any other albums kind of laid the foundation for who I am as a musician. You know, it's kind of punk rock banging on a piano and uh, kind of psychedelic listening to the Beatles. And so as I grew up and actual punk rock came around, I was like, oh yeah, please, that's for me. I loved the do-it-yourself uh, kind of vibe of it. I remember seeing the Sex Pistols in a magazine and thinking, I I like that. Whatever they're doing, I want to do it. 
I didn't have any gear at the time, so I started recording um, with two boom boxes and stolen cassette tapes from my mom's French lessons. <laughs> so a lot of my recordings had my mom speaking French in between the songs, which was kind of great. Uh, and that was, you know, like a sound on sound thing. I'd bounce from one boom box to the other boom box and back and forth. And, um, you know, eventually my mom took pity on me, probably to preserve her her cassette collection and uh, bought me a four track. And that was incredible. That was like being given the keys to the path to the kingdom. <laughs> and I just really loved recording. I loved the thrill of the moment of multi-tracking myself of making things happen in that, you know, special sonic uh, space that I had previously been just a listener to and now I felt like I was participating and I think that also kind of uh, informed how I eventually came around to making music which is you know be happy in the moment and be happy with what you're doing because there's a good chance nobody will ever hear it or it won't be successful uh, and just being kind of centered in the moment is something that uh, I think I got out of that those first four track uh, experiments. And a lot of the songs I wrote back then were kind of like rejection of comfort and rejection of my sort of middle class upbringing, just so, just so I could rail against something, um, you know. And eventually I started kind of playing with other people and getting into the sort of early punk rock scene in, Seat uh, in Seattle. And uh, also, again, the do-it-yourself idea was reinforced then. And eventually I went to college in New York and, um, you know, started a band there and uh, went to Boston and started bands there and started busking in Boston, which was super fun. And that was like a way to kind of also keep that do-it-yourself aesthetic alive. You know, like I didn't need to book a show or get somebody's approval to play a live show. I could just gather up my gear and go down to the subway or go to Harvard Square and and play and it was a really great little loop like a closed loop of success like i felt like i was successful i could write a song i could record it on my four track i could make a little cassette uh, a series of songs on a cassette i could make copies of it i could put it in my bag i could go to the subway play music sell my little cassettes and entertain people and i was like that's it i'm done it was perfect so i was pretty much envisioning that as my life uh, forever. Um, I didn't think about anything more, really. Uh, during that time, I met Mary Lou Lord, who is another busker on the scene in Boston. And we used to do this thing where we would trade time in a, in, like if she got a really good spot in Harvard Square, um, I would go uh, hold her spot by playing some songs while she went to use the bathroom. <laughs> we would do that for each other if we noticed each other busking uh, and the other one wasn't. So um, that was kind of a bonding experience between she and I. And then eventually she and I started a band called Strumpet and we played around in Boston a bit and uh, just for a little moment. Um, and then I ended up moving back to Seattle. I woke up one morning, I was living in Boston and I was kind of not feeling great and I was not eating well and I had, you know, health issues and I was tired and getting sick a lot and my music was really kind of getting heavy and and all of a sudden I woke up one morning and I thought, "Oh, I am from Seattle. Why don't I go back to Seattle?" 
because Nirvana had released Nevermind and I had been messing, <clears throat> messing around with melodic dark music myself. And I remember hearing that record and thinking, whoa, okay, I don't have to try to make the record I'm trying to make. I'll just listen to this one. <laughs> it was that close to what I was trying to do. So I felt like, you know, I better hightail it back home. Uh, so I did. And the experience of arriving home was so fantastic. Just like, um, I don't know, this feeling of belonging of the atmosphere of the Northwest, the sort of swampiness, the dirt, the, the worms, the uh, fungus of this particular place made me really, really happy. And so I wrote a whole bunch of songs that ended up being sort of the kindling for the presidents of the United States of America. I really bottled that joy of coming back home. Still, I'm just, you know, seeing music as something that I do to alleviate boredom maybe a little bit like you know get together with friends and play on a tuesday night at the rock club just to have something to do on a tuesday night and uh life was simple and easy and and improvisational i never knew where the day was going to take me um and it was a really beautiful time it was fantastic uh during that time i started working for my older brother at home uh making phone calls to set up appointments for him to go sell computer networks to local businesses. So it was great because I could uh, roll out of bed. I could work on my four track for a bit, write some songs, uh, make some phone calls. If I got inspired, uh, I would stop making phone calls and record songs. I remember recording several presidents demos during that time in between uh, phone calls to local businesses for my brother. And uh, one of those uh, days, my phone rang and it was Mary Lou. And she was still in Boston, and she was saying that I needed to uh, check out this guy, Beck, who was signed, just signed, and shared a publisher with Mary Lou. And the publisher had let Mary Lou know that Beck was wanting to put a live band together, and he needed musicians. And Mary Lou immediately thought of me. So she was calling me to say that I should throw my hat in the ring as a sideman for this guy, Beck. Now, we all know who Beck is now, and that seems like an obvious choice. But at the time, I also had the choice of joining a friend's band uh, called Flop here in Seattle. They needed a bass player. And so I remember learning Flop's bass lines and learning the bass lines on the Beck Loser EP at the same time and thinking, now, which one am I going to choose, Beck or Flop? And you got to remember, it's, it's as if somebody were to call you today and say, hey, there's this new artist, uh, you know, Spaghetti Johnson. Uh, he's going to be incredible. You got to be his side musician. <laughs> and you'd be like, Spaghetti Johnson? I don't know if Spaghetti Johnson's really ever going to uh, do anything. And these friends of mine in this band Flop are touring and having fun. And maybe I should join them. Anyway, eventually, uh, Mary Lou called me back again because I was kind of hemming and hawing. And she said that Beck would be in Seattle in a few days and she would be with him and she could introduce me to him. And he was going to do two shows, one at the Crocodile Cafe and one at the OK Hotel. It's just him and his acoustic guitar. So I agree to meet him and I get down to the Crocodile that night and I'm kind of early and I'm because I'm terminally punctual and uh, I'm doodling on a napkin with a pen, felt tip pen. And I 
ended up doing this. I used to do free form doodling back then. Just, I had no idea where I was going to go when I started the drawing. I would just draw and let the drawing kind of unfold. And that particular night, the drawing that unfolded was two fish creatures. And in my mind, I, I called them sharks. And they had a piece of fabric in their teeth between them, like a, like a swing. And on that swing, I put this snowman, classic snowman-shaped character with a bullseye on his belly and with a crown on his head. And I remember in college, I'd learned about the surrealist movement and the Dada uh, plays that they would write. And one of them was Ubuwa about a rich bureaucrat. And he was a chubby individual with a bullseye on his chest, as I remember him, and kind of a hat, like a crown hat. And so I thought, well, this is two sharks fighting over a king. You know, I didn't think anything of it, but I did save the drawing because I was saving everything back then. And put it in the back of my uh, in my back pocket, and in walked Beck and Mary Lou, and she introduced me, and we chatted a bit, and then he was basically up on stage uh, a few minutes later, and I was watching the show, and it blew my mind. I loved it so much. His lyrics were so dense and visual, and and Dada and surreal, and um, you know, uh, little movies went off in my head, just like when I listened to the Beatles when I was you know, two and a half years old in 1967. And afterwards I told him that. And I think we bonded over that because uh, the next night, you know, we hung out again and this was at the OK Hotel. And at that time, Loser was out. So he was doing acoustic guitar, but he was playing a, a digital audio tape backing track to do Loser and he was just doing the vocal. So the second night, the DAT tape broke. And he didn't have a backing track and he was kind of floundering up there a little bit. And I just impulsively jumped up on stage and grabbed one of his little keyboards, like a Casio or something, and started stomping my foot and, and singing in the microphone. And he kind of fell in and then we fell in together. And then eventually this weird freeform freedom kind of exploded all over the stage. And we ended up on the floor with multiple harmonicas in our mouths, like having a harmonica duel. Uh, a, a, like an absurd <laughs> harmonica contest. And it was amazing. And I'd never really felt that free with somebody. You know, I just felt like I could do anything. I had met Beck and I was on tour with Beck and Beck told me that he needed a, a bass player. He was putting a band together um, for a tour. And I said, well, I, I know a guy, but he only, but he plays, it's only a two string bass. Here's Mary Lou Lord with how she remembers it. I had a gig in Seattle. Um, oh, God, I can't remember the name of the club. But I opened for Beck, and I told Chris, I said, Chris, bring bring your bass and bring an amp, and maybe after the show we can hang out, and you can I'll definitely, of course, introduce you, and you can um, just hang out and shoot the shit and play a little bit for him. Um, and he's like, okay, cool. So <laughs> I do the gig, and Chris comes, and he didn't bring a bass, as far as I remember. What he brought was a box of harmonicas. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, right? So I introduced him before the show. And uh, I, I, I opened, did the thing, hanging out with Chris. Um, and then I thought later, okay, well, I'll after the show, we can hang out, right? So... <laughs> I said, did you bring your bass? He's like, no, I brought these. 
box of harmonica. It was like 14 harmonicas. And I'm just like, what the fuck, right? <laughs> so anyway, Beck is doing his show and Chris is there. We're loving it. And um, Beck starts to do the song called Loser, right? And there's a harmonica solo in it. And Chris jumped on the stage. Um, and I was just like, oh, my God, what is he doing? What is he doing? Because, like I said, like Beck had just met him. Um, and this is a guy that's going to audition to play bass, right? So Chris jumps on the stage with his box of harmonicas. And it was clear to Beck to go with it and do like a dueling harmonica, um, like a harmonica off, whatever you would call it, right? Like dueling harmonicas. And so Beck is doing his harmonica solo and Chris picks up like one mic one harmonica and starts playing it. And then two, then three, then four. Then he had like six harmonicas in his mouth. And Beck is just looking at him like, who is this guy? And but he knew that I he wasn't just some rando because I had just introduced him. And then people went absolutely nuts. It was incredible to watch the crowd dig this. And at the end of it, Chris grabbed uh, Beck's arm and he raised it up and he said, the winner. It was just so amazing. And uh, a couple days later, he invited, he had, inv well, actually it was the next day, uh, he invited me down to Olympia. He was recording with Calvin Johnson in Calvin's basement, Calvin of K Records, uh, making an album. And although he had just got signed, Beck had carved out a way that he could make albums on the side for smaller labels and just kind of be free to be weird at the same time as being a major label guy. So I went to the uh, bus station. Uh, actually, no, first I went to, he said he needed a slide guitar player. So first I went to the music store and I bought a slide guitar because <laughs> I did not own one. Of course, I said when he said he needed a slide guitar player, I said, of course, I can play slide. I never played slide guitar before that in my life. So I went to the store. I bought a guitar. I bought a slide. I literally went right from the store to the bus station uh, in Seattle. And when this is a little bit of a side tangent, but when I bought the ticket to go to Olympia, uh, the man behind the counter at the bus station slid me a $2 bill as change. And he said, everything's going to change as he slid me my change. <laughs> and I still have that $2 bill hanging over the door of my studio. I've hung it over the door of my studio ever since uh, because it turned out to be true. Everything did change, which I'll get to in a minute. So I get the $2 bill in my pocket. I get on the bus. I go to Olympia. I walk out of the bus. I walk down the street. I walk down another street. I walk into Calvin's house. I walk down into Calvin's basement and right into a recording booth where they say, play slide on this song. And I have never heard the song before in my life. So they start the playback. I start hunting around. It's kind of awkward and, you know, uh, choppy and and that's what they were after. I mean, that's what Beck was after. He wasn't after a proficient slide guitar player. He was after somebody who could slide around on guitar. <laughs> and really somebody who could play that, you know, the, the signature riff in Loser, the bow, 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 bow. So I recorded on a few songs, played bass. Maybe I think I did a little vocals here and there. Um, and then I ended up staying overnight and hanging around and walking around Olympia with Beck and Calvin and, and, uh, James Bertram and Sam Jane and all these people and had a great time. I went home, uh, you know, Beck didn't say 
any, anything one way or another about getting together again or continuing to hang out or whatever. I went home and two days later, I think it was the phone rang and it was Beck. And he said, how would you like to join my band and go on tour? And that was just this, that's the pinpoint exact moment when everything changed. When I realized that my foundation as a do-it-yourself artist was wonderful and a very comfortable place to be. But I think secretly, way deep down, having grown up with the Beatles especially and thinking about the aspect of their experience, which was, you know, screaming fans and adoration and hitting the big time, I think that little ember of big time desire was still smoldering in the back of my DIY brain. <laughs> and when Beck said, how'd you like to do it? I thought, yes, absolutely. I would love to um, fan that little ember and see what happens. And so it was like my first time that I didn't have to have a day job. I could get paid to make music and be a actual professional. And I said, yes, of course. I hung up the phone and I thought, I need to just take in this moment. This is it. And I went outside of my little house in Seattle and opened the door and it was a, it was wintertime. It was January and it was kind of fresh out and there'd been a windstorm the night before. And the yard was kind of littered with various bits of garbage. And I saw one folded up piece of paper that I thought, uh, what is that? And I picked it up and I unfolded it. And it was a big kind of off-white piece of paper, maybe a foot and a half by a foot. It was the kind of paper that was given to elementary school kids when I was a kid, where it has kind of blue lines on the bottom and then a space up top for your drawing. And it's like for doing writing exercises, like a little story on the bottom and a, a place for a drawing on the top. And that's what it was. It was a kid's drawing with a kid's little sentence explanation on the bottom. And it was two fish or sharks fighting over a king. And the, the, the sentence the child wrote was, one time two sharks were fighting to see who would be king. And I immediately, of course, thought of the drawing I did right before I met Beck and thought, this is insanely bizarre that this theme of fighting over a king or fighting to see who would be king is presenting itself so randomly. So that just kind of blew my mind. And I thought, well, between the between the the ticket seller sliding me that two dollar bill and saying everything's gonna change like it's a Disney movie, and this uh, shark king drawing connection, I'm in for a wild ride. I thought. So I moved to L.A. because I was the only band member not uh, from Los Angeles, and I lived with Beck. And when I arrived, he was in the UK doing Top of the Pops. And so his roommates invited me and they were making music for pornos. Because if you make a piece of instrumental music at the time, if you made a piece of instrumental music and you gave it to uh, somebody in the porn industry, they would give you 50 bucks to buy it outright. So they were making money, basically. They were like, we got to pay the rent. We got to write these music, <laughs> this music for this porno. Um, so I fell right in with them. I wrote a bunch of songs for the for the porno, uh, we ended up uh, being a band and we actually played a gig. <laughs> I don't know if you can swear on this thing or you can beep this out, but the name of the band was the Melon Fucking She-Males. 
which was also the name of the movie, which we eventually saw, and it was exactly what it uh, sounds like. <laughs> so um, that was my first intro to living in L.A. with Beck and his uh, roommates was making music for porn. And then he came back and then we kind of hung out a little more, I think, than the other band members because I was living with him. So we would drive around L.A. and we had some really interesting talks about, you know, his transition from... Uh, a four tracker living in a cardboard box on the side of a hill, uh, eating with his hands, working at a video store to major label artists. And I really admired how he handled that. He, he stopped drinking. He stopped smoking. He bought a huge history book, Howard Zinn's history, uh, people's history of America. I think it was, he sat in the back of the van and read that history book and just like absorbed culture. And, uh, you know, really took his opportunity seriously. And all the conversations we had and all the uh, kind of, you know, performing together and uh, hanging around four tracking a little bit in his house together and writing a couple songs together and, and <clears throat> driving around LA, you know, talking about his transition. It was like I was going to fame school because the presidents had already started. And then I went off with Beck. And uh, so I felt like I was you know, getting primed for my own experience in a way. It was like I was standing next to the eye of the storm without being in the eye of the storm. Or I guess the eye is uh, calm, so maybe that's not the best analogy. But, you know, standing next to a tornado and not getting sucked in, but watching the tornado uh, do its thing. So, um, you know, eventually I kind of started to feel um, choked off by Beck not for anything he did, but he was so in tune with his creativity and so genius and so quick and so um, surreal and nimble-minded and kind of such a force that the, the light coming off of him was, was uh, burning me up. <laughs> I really, I lost myself in being his, you know, side guy. And I thought, you know what? I don't really want to lose myself. I've got this other band going. And in the meantime, you know, Jason Finn, who worked at the Comet, had called me and said, we're selling demo cassettes over the bar like crazy. you got to come home. And so after two tours with Beck, I quit. And I went back to do my own thing and uh, got signed and, did, you know, had my own tornado uh, to wrangle. And, uh, you know... It, the getting signed was tricky because I kind of felt like with having, you know, been with Beck, I had kind of gotten the sort of major label experience and I didn't really feel like I needed it for myself. But again, the ember of curiosity was flickering. Like, could I do this for not just be an accompanist to somebody who's experiencing, but could I do my own uh, sort of ride in the big leagues? And so I, you know, I got on the pony and the pony was pooping gold bricks and driving and running as fast as it possibly could. And I held on for dear life. Eventually though, pretty quickly, I realized it really wasn't for me. And I, I didn't know exactly why. And it was kind of sad and um, it's kind of disorienting because I, you know, it's something I maybe secretly wanted my whole life. And then it was presented to me and then I just didn't, didn't feel right. Uh, but I kept doing it because, you know, it's a huge opportunity. So anyway, all that by way of saying that the, the sort of DIY way I came up was first challenged with my, uh, you know, collaboration with Beck. And then it was challenged even more when it was uh, um, my turn 
to kind of, you know, put on my big boy pants. Eventually, I have come around to realize that I am a solo artist, solo musician. I'm not really a band member. And I think in this, in another way that I didn't quite get at the time, uh, my time with Beck was um, super informative in that way too, because he was solo. And I kind of got to see what it's like to be the only guy in charge or the only one really, you know, authoring the creative uh, project. And although at the time I didn't understand that that was also my fate, uh, now I'm kind of drawing again on that experience to uh, kind of solidify my uh, choice to be a solo artist. Um, I did music for little kids and their parents for uh, 12 years. I made 19 albums and I did it all DIY, completely all alone by myself. So it's like I've come full circle back to uh, being in charge of my own destiny in that sense. And um, I have that moment that I got that phone call from Beck and walked out in the yard and found that little drawing to thank for it. So that's the uh, moment that I lived through. Thank you, Chris, for that. Be sure to check out his website at chrisbaloo.org for details on his new album, Soul Unfolded, and to catch up with all of his musical projects as well as his artwork. Now, let's hear what Chris is inspired by these days. One thing that's kind of inspiring my, me right now, believe it or not, is uh, Radiohead. I'm a little late to the Radiohead game. <laughs> I listened to OK Computer back in the 90s, and I hated it. So I never listened to anything else. But now I'm kind of getting into them. And weirdly, I was watching a movie last night, and the soundtrack really resonated with me. And I woke up this morning and went to listen to it. And it's by Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead. It's the soundtrack for the Jane Campion movie, The Power of the Dog. And so I did my stretching routine this, routine this morning to that. So I would say the soundtrack to The Power of the Dog is currently influencing me. Um, I'm rereading Eckhart Tolle's book, The Power of Now. I use it almost like a Bible. I just open it up to any old place and read for a little while. I am super inspired by Ram Das and um, his perspective. There's a great movie called Becoming Nobody. That Ram, it's a documentary about Ram Das, and uh, everybody should watch it. So everybody can become nobody. Um, you know, I'm very inspired by the Beatles right now again because of the Get Back series, the Peter Jackson thing. I had a very visceral, emotional response to it. One part of the response was um, reminding me why I want to be solo and not in a band <laughs> because it's so hard to pull four brains in the same direction. And the other was spending seven and a half hours over two days immersed in that atmosphere. When it was over, I had a lot of empty, lonely feeling or lonely, empty feeling uh, as if I was there and I missed those guys. You know, like I feel like I missed the Beatles like I missed my friends. Um, so that it was a very emotional and kind of intense experience. And I've heard that other people have had intense emotions after watching it. Um, I'm also just very inspired perpetually by my wife, Kate Endel. She makes this incredible artwork, which is like happy and um, sparkly and uh, folksy. And she also is DIY and she's got animals in her art and funny little mushrooms. And I just am constantly tickled and inspired by my lovely wife. I know other people can't uh, have her as their wife. Uh, wife. <laughs> they can't have her as their wife but they can enjoy her art. So I would say that's something that's inspiring me.
That's it for today's episode. Thanks to Chris and special guest Mary Lou Lord for sharing their stories. Please be sure to check out my book, Live Through That, available everywhere now for more stories and photos. Remember, you can get 15% off using the promo code PODCAST15 by ordering at the link on the podcast page. And if you like this show, please subscribe so you'll know when the next episode comes out. And go ahead and tell your friends, too. All right. Thank you so much. We'll be back next week. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.